0: Recently, And I'm not starting a new series or a new book of the Bible yet. Um, not, they didn't even ask me about that because I haven't even got there yet. But, so, last Sunday was Mother's Day, so we took a yeah. sermon about ladies, yes. women of great faith. And Easter's approaching, so our thoughts go back to that Passover uh, in Jerusalem, in that week around 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to the cross and died. And his body lay in a tomb for three days and then he rose again on the first day of the week. And uh, today I want to pick up on a phrase that turns up in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the message of the cross, the message of the cross. The context to what Paul is writing is that that, uh, he went to Corinth straight from Athens And in Athens, he had engaged with the Greek philosophy and mythology there and he'd kind of had debate, discussion with them. But to little effect, a a few people became believers. But, you know, it wasn't like a church was planted, a big thing happened. It didn't. It didn't. It was just a small fruit there. So when he arrived at Corinth, he ditched that approach altogether and focused on the core message of the gospel. And so later on, he's writing back to the Corinthians and reflecting on this. And by the, by the way, he's challenging them because they were dividing amongst themselves about, I favor Paul as my preacher and leader. I favor Apollos. Oh, I'm a Peter man. No, I'm of Jesus, said the really, really super spiritual ones. You know. And so here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written in the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? There's lots of them in Greek, <laughs> in Athens, certainly. Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through their wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness foolishness, of the message preached. For since in God's wisdom, the world didn't know God through their wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs, Greeks seek for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers, consider your calling. Think about yourselves and where you, who you were and before you were a Christian, he said. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth, blue bloods. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But it is from him, from God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers... Announcing the testimony of God to you. I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. For I didn't think... Actually, the older version is more... more, I determined. I made a choice. I made a decision. To know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear... In much trembling, my speech and my proclamation were not persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Power there is the same as authority. However, we do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages, for our glory, none of the rulers of this age, whether the Jewish ones or the Roman ones, knew this wisdom. for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what I did not see and ear did not hear, and what never entered into the human mind, God has prepared these things for those who love him. The message of the cross. That's the phrase that Paul uses there. When he arrived at Corinth, he had determined to put aside philosophical arguments and discussions and comparative religion. Well, you think this about God, but I'm going to tell you about God. He tried that at Athens and it, he had, had very little fruit. He was going to go to Corinth and he was having, coming back to one message. Jesus Christ and him crucified which is ridiculous to Jews and to Greeks, but no, it doesn't matter. That's where the power of God is in this message of the crucified Savior. The cross. The cross. We see crosses everywhere nowadays, you know, images and I didn't put mine on today. I often do wear a metal cross underneath my shirt. The early Christians didn't use the cross as a symbol. For centuries they didn't. They had a, a fish sign that they used, which, 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 was, which was because ichthys, fish in Greek, has the letters that stand for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Our Savior. And they put a fish on the outside of their door to say, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come in, because this is a Christian home. They're a Christian says. So if you're a traveling Christian, you can, have, you, can, you can come and be put up for the night here. And so they, they signaled you know, themselves to one another by a fish sign. It said that if a Christian was walking along the road and he met somebody, he would draw half a fish sign, which is like just that loop. Let me just do this for you on the screen. It was like that, you know, yeah. up and like that. And then if the other guy bent down and did the other half, they went, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> they were very wary and careful in how they spoke about the death of Jesus. With great respect. But in later centuries, the cross became the defining symbol of Christianity. And since then, many people have appropriated it, it appears in jewelry, art, and so on. And we've become accustomed to the symbol of the cross. But if we do this, put a cross alongside a hangman's gibbet and loose, we go, ooh. ooh. Yet both are symbols of a terrifying death. They are, they are equally horrifying, really, as symbols. The word excruciating comes from crucify. Being crucified. So be careful when you say, I have excruciating pain. <laughs> and I've even a bit careful about that expression, nailed it. I'm, I'm mm, I don't think I'll have that one anymore. Victims of this form of capital punishment, the cross, had their hands and feet bound and then nailed, actually like a big stake driven through their wrists and then one through both ankles. And then the cross was erected in a public place and they were left there. But if a man did not go to the cross already weakened by other forms of you know, abuse and torture and whatever else, he could live on the cross for two or even three days. in excruciating agony. Over time, the weight of the body on the limbs was such that it was just weighing down. And the only way to get a breath was to push up, to pull up on those wrists, to push up on those those ankles and drag another breath into your lungs. And when a man was no longer strong enough to push and get a breath, that's when he died. And if for some reason you wanted to hurry up that person dying, guess what they did? They broke their legs so they couldn't get another breath. So here are the facts of the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Mid-evening, the night before, Jesus is seated around the table with the last, for the disciples with the last supper. And then maybe around midnight, as we say, he goes to Gethsemane and he's praying there agonizing, blood, sweats, drops of blood coming from his brow because he's struggling with this mission to receive in himself all the sin of the whole world and then go to the cross with it and die the death of the sinner so that we might be reconciled to God. I've got to be careful not to preach everything. We'll be here all afternoon. Mm-hmm. It's okay. While Jesus is there in the garden, Judas comes to betray him to an arresting crowd with a kiss and Jesus is taken to the Jerusalem the Jewish authorities and put on trial they beat him up they hear false witnesses against him and finally they contem- condemn him to death for blasphemy for admitting that he is the son of God and therefore as he'd already had debates with them you know if you're the son of God you're equal with the father aren't you however they've committed they, they want him to die but only the Romans are allowed to execute people you know, they had to prove to the Romans that somebody's worthy of death, and the Romans would crucify them. They weren't allowed to do their normal, old-fashioned stoning thing. You know. So at 6 a.m., as soon as it's daybreak, they're off to the Roman governor, to Pilate, and they say to Pilate, "This man is guilty of," and they go, "They say of rebellion against Rome." They change the charge because they want him killed. They want him crucified. Over the next three hours, Pilate knows that this man is innocent, doesn't want to deal with him. His wife had him, saying, don't have anything to do with this man, you know. Uh, and and, and, and he's, he's trying to wriggle out of it and let Jesus go. He sends him even to Herod, who's the local king under the Roman authorities. And Herod sends him back to Pilate. And, and they have been enemies before for some reason. They became chums, friends, because of this transaction. And finally, Pilate even presents Jesus to the crowd gathered outside his, 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 his governor's palace and says, look, I, I'll, it's a festival tomorrow, it's the holy day, right? Passover. So listen, I've got two prisoners here. Barabbas, he's a murderer and a thief and, and a rebel and he's Jesus. Who, who shall I release to you for the festival? They say, Barabbas! Well, what shall I do with Jesus then? Crucify him! Crucify him! And he washes his hands and said, I'm not not having to do this. His blood be upon your shoulders. And they actually say, his blood be upon our heads and upon our children. They shout, they bay for his blood. Jesus is taken by the Roman guards. And firstly, he's flogged and abused and mocked by them. And then he's taken to take the cross up to Golgotha. Calvary. Golgotha is a much more ugly word than Calvary. Calvary Calvary is skull. Golgo is skull in Aramaic. It's the place of the skull. It's the the, the hill that looks like a skull. And that's where people were crucified and put to death. Jesus is weakened by a terrible flogging. And so he can't carry the cross. He's too weak. So they get a man called Simon from Cyrene to carry it for him. Cyrene, my friends, is in North Africa. It's quite possible that Simon was a black man. At 9am, which is the third hour of the day in Roman time, yeah? they counted from sunup to sundown, 12 hours in the day, 6am sunup, 9am third hour, they crucified Jesus. By the way, there's a painting like that at the back wall there that was done by Chris Stragaskis, sister, for us years ago. No, it's a powerful painting. He's nailed to the cross. Having refused wine mixed with myrrh that was provided by a benefactor that would have at least offered some sedation for some hours from pain. Two criminals were also cru- crucified with him, left and right. Jesus having been raised on the cross, forgave his executioners. But they were actually busy by then casting lots, throwing gambling dice for his clothes. During the next three hours, 9 a.m. till midday, Jesus was insulted and mocked by the leaders, by the gathered crowd, except for his mother, a few other women, and his friend John who were there. None of the other disciples were there. The two crucified criminals either side of him mocked him too. But as noon approaches, one of the criminals changes his mind and very simply says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord Jesus assures him that that man will today be with him in paradise. Jesus also speaks to his mother Mary and says that John will now be a son to her. And to John, she is now your mother. And John did take care of Mary for the rest of her life. Three hours, Jesus has been on the cross. A man who hadn't been flogged could live for days. But it's a Jewish festival tomorrow, so no one's going to survive today. At noon, the sixth hour in Roman time, darkness descends upon the land. Darkness descends on the land. God turns the lights out, very simply. God turned the lights out. And Jesus was silent for three hours. I just stopped for 20 seconds. There was no sound from him. What happened during that time? Well, we have hints in Old Testament prophecy. Let me just summarize it the way I understand it. Waves of the judgment of God against sin fell on Jesus the Son in darkness and silence, like waves of an ocean hitting a shore. So Jesus bore the wrath of God and didn't open his mouth. One hymn writer, actually, John, uh, Stuart Townhead, and I've given you the hymn at the end at the end of uh, one of his verses about this it says how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory at the end of three hours at three o'clock in the afternoon The light comes back on. Jesus had cried out at the end of that three hours, Father, why have you forsaken me? Cried dereliction at the end of the three hours. Then he said, I thirst. And he received some sour wine on a sponge on a stick up to the cross so he can just sip this sour wine. Why did he do that? Well, I, I have an idea about that, okay? I haven't checked it out to see if anybody agrees with me. But Jesus knew what he was going to do next. Mm. And so he has some sour wine to wet his mouth. Because the next thing he does is he cries, and as far as we know, he said it in, in Greek, to tell us, die! Which means it is finished. That, my friends, was the cry of a warrior on the battlefield when he had won. When all the enemies are dead, the warrior stands there and says, it's finished. Jesus, how did people die on the cross? (gasps) Can't get a breath, can't get a breath. Jesus, with a loud voice, shouts, it is finished. Then, more quietly, so that only one of the gospel writers heard it, and that was John. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last Immediately after Jesus died, there was an earthquake in Jerusalem. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom because God was not in that house. That was the truth. There was no no shining presence of God in there. It was empty. God was on the cross dying, or had just died three o'clock in the afternoon. At Golgotha, the Roman centurion in charge of the execution party said, surely this was the Son of God. And Because sundown is coming in a few hours time, which would signal the start of the Jewish festival, the Romans are sent in to break the legs of these, these victims. They break the legs of the two criminals to finish them off in another few minutes. But they come to Jesus and they see that he's already dead so they don't break his legs. But one of the soldiers thrust a spear into his side and water and blood pour out of him. His body was taken down and before sundown, 6pm, was laid in the tomb of a man called Joseph of Arimathea who was one of the Sanhedrin, one of the council that had condemned Jesus to death. Perhaps he hadn't been there that night in the early hours. The tomb was sealed and guarded by the authorities because they were afraid the disciples would steal the body of Jesus away and claim that he'd risen from the dead. Those are the facts of the cross. But the cross has a message. Even when I've told you the facts, there's a message in the cross. It summarizes the work of the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection and our faith in him. Let's go back and pick up on some of the things and a few things that weren't in 1 Corinthians 8 as well. First of all, the message of the cross is God's wisdom, but foolishness to men, to people. There's a reason why so many people actually hate the cross and some other religions. Do you notice that false religions hate the cross? They don't hear about it. Do you ever, do you ever, you ever have a break? I'm not saying which religions, but I could mention a few. Yeah? They hate the cross, won't hear about it. Why? Because it's foolishness to those who do not have faith. And then there are people who use the symbol in all sorts of ways, but if you start to explain to them what the cross of Jesus means, they don't want to hear it either. Why is the cross so offensive? Because it kills our wisdom. It tells us that we do not have an idea. We like to think we're okay, we can make it, we can sort ourselves out. I know I've got this, that, but I can sort it. The cross says, no, you can't. You need a savior. You need someone to take your life and kill it and give you a new one. The cross tells us we're not okay. We need rescue by God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The cross is indeed where Jesus died in our place for our sins. But the cross kills our pride and deeply offends our so-called human dignity and our self-dependence. We think we're okay. The cross says, no, you're not. But it's God's wisdom and God's truth. For Jewish people, the idea of a Messiah who is going to be the king and and defeat the Romans and restore the kingdom of David again to Israel and and they're going to rule in their land. For the king to die? Well, that's bad enough, but on a cross? What? How, How offensive are you trying to be to me to tell me that my Messiah is not only going to die, but die on a Roman cross? And for Greek thinking, the Greeks had their myths and legends and for, for a God, one of their gods, to become a man, oh yeah, he may become a man and have a bit of an affair with a woman, and yeah, you know, God's becoming, but that man is going to die, who's still God. What? One of our gods is going to, no, no, the one true God is going to suffer death. And then, by the way, he's going to rise from the dead. What? Dead people come alive again? Don't be ridiculous. They were, they were what, where science came from, the Greeks. So we say, no, this is what is true, and that can't be true because that's ridiculous. That's, that's Greek thinking. Well, I'll tell you what is ridiculous. Number one, God became man. Number two, God died. Number two, number three, he rose from the dead. Yes. Amen. That's God's wisdom. And it makes the foolish, it makes the so-called wisdom of this world appear what it really is, foolishness. Foolishness. Secondly, the message. Oh, I'm taking my time. I need to spend. The message of the cross is God's love for us. God's love for us is spelled out at the cross. God loved those who'd rebelled against and rejected Him. How would He win them back? And the penalty for rebellion and treason against the Most High King is death. Usually, as in most societies, you rebel against the king, you have got to die. But how could God be just, upright as a judge, and put away these crimes against himself? So from the earliest times, there's a thread going through the scriptures, a scarlet thread, a crimson thread, of the shedding of blood. Adam and Eve were clothed with the skins of animals, killed for that purpose. Later on, Israel again brings sacrifices of animals because they picture something that God is going to do in time. He's going to put his dear son... Pictured his language in prophetic language. His name in prophetic language is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He's going to put his son, his Lamb, on the cross. If I be lifted up, said Jesus, I'll draw all men to me. The penalty for sin is death. So the only remedy for sin is death. If 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 sin's going to kill you, then somebody then someone's going to kill the sin. Yeah. And all of that transaction happened because of the love of God. So over the centuries, the Lamb of God coming to die on the cross was foreshadowed through the, the prophecies and the rituals and all of those things in the Old Testament. The Father, I'm summarizing a lot of scripture here, the Father loved us and gave his dear Son up to the cross for us. Jesus loved us and went to the cross for us. And that was not an easy decision. You can see him sweating blood, making the final last-minute decision to go through with it in Gethsemane. He chose to die our death so that we might have forgiveness, freedom, and new life. And the message of the cross is also God's victory to the Top of his lungs. Jesus took the sin of the whole world to the cross took death to the cross, and triumphed over them. said before, a crucified man generally died of lack of, of asphyxiation. He couldn't, literally couldn't draw another breath into his racked body. But Jesus used one big last breath to shout his victory. It is finished. It was a warrior's cry at the end of a battle. The enemy is to be defeated. And the scriptures, scriptures clearly state that it was at the cross, not in the resurrection, my friends, Jesus was not beaten at the cross and won at the resurrection. He won at the cross. That's what the scripture says. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated all the power, the authority of Satan and evil powers. And from the moment that Jesus died on the cross, his victory has been running around the earth. That's why there was an earthquake. There was a shaking because the kingdom of God was suddenly running around the planet. His kingdom has been advancing and increasing. His resurrection was the confirmation, the public declaration, that all of his claims were true, that he truly is God, the Son. His victory is complete. And among his last words to his disciples after his resurrection are these. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The kingdom of God is in the hands of Jesus which bear the scars, the wounds of Golgotha. Those hands hold the cosmos, the world, the nations, the church, And you. Those hands hold you. The message of the cross is God's offer of salvation. That is to be brought back from your slavery. To be rescued. To be forgiven. To be reconciled. To know God's adoption as a child of God. To know his peace and his joy. And his love. Salvation. And this message, this offer, must be taken to every people group on the planet. So the kingdom of Jesus runs around until it's completed its course. And then he will return. People say, when's Jesus coming? Well, there's a clue in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, I think it is, maybe 23. Uh, this Gospel's got to be preached to all the nations. Then the end can come. Yeah. The Gospel's got to finish its kingdom work of reaping a harvest for Jesus. God offers people everywhere his acceptance and his love through faith in his son who died and rose again for us. And there is no other way to God. No other religion or philosophy will do. In fact, even the religion of Christianity won't do. It's faith in Jesus, not, not thinking you're a Christian or believing that Christianity is true. It's faith in Jesus. Yeah. No amount of self discipline or self improvement will do. You can go and buy your get you know help yourself books in Waterstones or wherever or Amazon or wherever else. They will not make you acceptable to God. They might make you a slightly better person in some ways, but it's faith in the Son of God, the crucified and risen Saviour, that brings God's offer of salvation to you, to your person, to your home, to your life. Jesus is our saviour through his death on the cross in our place, bearing our sins. So we are preaching this good news, this offer of Jesus, not as a history lesson. though so the facts of the death and resurrection of Jesus are true history and, and recent historians to the time of Jesus report these things. A guy called Josephus, a Jewish man who ended up working for the Romans, reports this man who, who is reported as having been killed and, re, and rose from the dead. He he, he, he he repeats the report, but it's God's offer of grace through faith in Jesus, and they're talking about grace. Moving on, it's God's power. The message of the cross—we read it a few times in one Corinthians eight. One, sorry, it's God's power, God's authority, not like electricity. Oh, ow! What's that? It's like ooh! Suddenly, there's impact. Things change. Things happen because there's authority. God's power. It's God's power to us who are being saved. Foolishness to people who are perishing. And I'll come back again to that in a minute. But it's God's power to us who are being saved. Let me quote from Romans. Sorry, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel. This good news. Because it's, it is God's power for salvation or to save everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Greek also. When you believe the gospel, when you become a Christian, as we would say, you do not join a self-improvement club, a bit like Weight Watchers, but for your soul instead, you know. (laughs) You are plugged into the life and power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You're plugged into eternal life, the life that is God's life and flows from him. His life flows to you. His power is at work in you and through you. One of the ways the Bible talks about this is to use the expression, the grace of God. People talk about grace. When when you say explain grace, they usually talk about mercy. It's about God's kindness and forgiveness. That's mercy. That's a little bit of grace. Grace is far more than mercy. Grace takes hold of someone and changes them. It makes them a new person. It gives them a new life. It then empowers them, not just... Sunday by Sunday, but day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second, to live a new life Hallelujah. that flows from God through Jesus. To live in a new relationship with God through Jesus. It's eternal life, folks. And it starts now. It gets better when we get to the new heaven and earth, but right now we know we have eternal life. Yeah. We're plugged in to the life of God through Jesus. It's power. It's power. It's power. Where, do, where, where does your energy come from in life? We read it earlier in Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their Energy. Sustaining, life-giving force comes from faith in Jesus. Being connected to him through faith. The message of the cross is there is power available. There is strength available. There is courage available. There's wisdom available. There's the resources, that, the, the infinite resources of God are available to help you to live yep. in a way you, couldn't, you could never do otherwise. Grace is offered because of the cross. You say grace is free, yeah, because Jesus paid for it. You want to count that cost? Infinite cost. How precious is the blood of God? And Paul uses that expression in Acts 20, talking to the Ephesian elders, the blood of God. He purchased his church with his blood. How precious is the death and suffering of Jesus. So the message of the cross, summing up a bit here, is life instead of death. And it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Think of the expression, the dead and the dying, the perishing. The Bible describes everyone outside of Jesus as already being dead in sin. Already being dead. Dead towards God and headed not only towards physical death, but to an everlasting death or dying without the presence of God. So we talk about hell. That's what the word perishing points to. It's not just like a tire, it's perished, oh, it's useless now. No, it's far worse than that. Perishing means you're dying and you're going to die and you're going to die forever. But the cross of Jesus is where death is exchanged for life. I should have put this up behind me, but very simply, Jesus died our death so that we may now have his life. That we may have life in him. So the believer in Jesus has, by grace through faith, received now eternal life, the life of God, as a gift. For the wages of sin, that's the only place where God pays wages. You carry on in sin, you'll get your wages. It's death. Everywhere else, for Christians, God rewards us. He doesn't pay wages, he rewards. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Outside of faith in Jesus, you're going to die and die and die and die. It's death. But in Jesus, as a free gift, you receive eternal life, the life of God, life in God, from God, with God that flows from God and you think, why is he quoted John 3.16, well I thought I'd save it all now for God loved the world in this way he gave his one and only son literally he gave up the up is to the cross, he gave up his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, that dying, dying, dying thing, but have eternal life. The person who believes in Jesus, his cross and resurrection, is no longer perishing, but has the life of God. But lastly, finally, what this means practically for me, if I talk about me, you can include yourself or not, it's up to you. The cross is the death of me. Did, did anybody, anybody with me? Do you know where I'm going? Yes. The, cross is, cro- the, cross. <laughs> the cross is the death of me. See, Jesus didn't die because he'd lived a bad life. There was nothing wrong with his life. He was good in every way. He fulfilled the law. He pleased his father. He never failed to keep the promises of God and the ordinances of God. no. Jesus had to take his perfect life to the cross so that our rubbish life was killed on the cross. And we could have his righteousness. His righteousness is substituted for our wretchedness. His holiness is substituted for my shame. His worthy, open relationship with God, clean conscience, pleasing the Father, he's substituted for my guilt and my shame. So the cross is the death of me. And that is really good news. Because I don't want that life anymore. Listen to Paul, preaching this stuff to the Galatians. As for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Let me just say here, there's, there's a thing that comes particularly from the kind of Catholic background of thinking. You've got to crucify yourself, you've got to die. Do you know what? The Bible always puts it past tense. You have been crucified, you have died, wake up! Believe it and live it, but it's already happened. It doesn't say, you need to go to the cross, my dear boy. It says, no, Jesus went to the cross to give you a new life, so stop doing the old one. That's the language of the new covenant to us. We believe in a fixed, certain result that Jesus has already accomplished for us. It is finished. I can add nothing to it, but I can let it work in me. I can take hold of it and let it become practical. The world is crucified to me through the cross. So one old hymn says, dead to the world and all its toys, its fading pomp and something joys. I'm dead to the world. Who cares what the world thinks? Who cares what... Am I, am I waiting for the world to approve of me? Am I waiting for their respect and their, their recognition? and Oh, he's a really nice guy, he's a good guy. Does, them, does it matter one bit? No because I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. I'm no longer a willing follower of the world and its ways. I'm no longer living by those standards and seeking their approval. In fact, the Lord Jesus spoke about this a number of times. I've given you five scriptures in the notes where Jesus says something like this, but I'm taking just the two from Matthew. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. Anyone losing his life because of me will find it. Matthew 16. If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life, you know, becoming a Christian is not getting a bit of life improvement. I'll, I'll carry on with these things and that's a, no, that's all right. I'll just carry on being... I'll just add this. No. No. It's complete life exchange. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it in the long term. Whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world that uses his life? Like everything on all the shelves of Amazon came to your house, but you still didn't have eternal life. Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? And Jesus said those things five times over. Remember, Jesus is saying those things to people before he's been crucified. How shocking is that? You want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross. He's talking about the cross again. He keeps talking about the cross. What is he, What is he going on with? Yet he invites people to pick up their cross to and follow him. Now, we act out this life and death exchange in baptism. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come off and become my disciple. Romans 6 verse 14. What Jesus accomplished on the cross, and we believe, and we we lay claim to, we're saying, yes, that's true for me. I believe that that's true for me too. Thank you, Jesus. We then get in the water, and we act it out. Here it is. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. We don't bury you in soil, because that would be pretty messy, and maybe it might kill you. We bury you in water, and only for a moment or two before we pull you back out again. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we now too may walk in a new way of life. The old life, buried with him in baptism. I've encouraged people before now when they've been really conscious about their past and how bad they've been in their past and said, I've used this analogy. I said, you get the water in there that we baptize you. Do you know where it goes when we pull the plug? or Down the drain. Yeah, where does it go down the drain? And they go down the sewer. I said, that's where your old life belongs, doesn't it? Are you happy now? Yeah? We're going to wash it down the sewer where it belongs. And you are going to come out the water to live a new life in Jesus. Yeah? It's powerful stuff, this. We're acting out something because the cross is the power of God. So when we embrace the cross and says, yes, Jesus, thank you, my own life is dead. I don't want to live one more second of that. And we wash it away by submitting to baptism in water. From then on, we choose to live by the grace of God, for the glory of God, by the energy he supplies, by the wisdom he supplies, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, living this new life of faith. So, summing it up, lastly. Here's Paul again, Galatians again. Notice what he says, past tense. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. His old life was killing Christians. (laughs) He's very glad that he's not living that old life anymore. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. All the time, 24-7. Who loved me. Listen, you can't get away from the cross. He loved me and what? What did he do? He gave himself for me. That, best I can in one, one go, is, my friends, is the message of the cross all of the above. It's good news. And if you will embrace it, even the death of me is good news to receive new life in Jesus. Have you received and believed this message of the cross? Have you personally responded to it? You see, this message must be preached to all nations so that all nations, one by one, person by person, can say, yes, I believe that. I receive that as being true for me. So when I'm presenting this to you, I'm not saying, do you see this truth? You go, yeah, yeah, okay, that's true. No, this is true and I must have it. This is true and I must live it. This is true and today I must pin my whole life upon it. That's faith. I challenge you to faith in the message. Not just hearing it and kind of accepting it, but to faithfully responding to the offer of God in the message of the cross. Let's bow our heads in prayer. We're sitting quietly now. I do urge you if you've never really made a personal response to the Christ who went to the cross in your place and arose again so that you might have the new life which he demonstrates in his resurrection. I challenge you to do it now. Urge you to do it now. Open your heart, speak quietly to him. Say, Lord Jesus. I want to belong to you. I want to follow you. I want to forget and lose all that I've been before in the past and receive from you a new beginning, a new way of life. Let's live by your supply, not my, my background, history. Thank you that there is forgiveness for the past. Thank you that there is power now to live. He's willing to exchange your life for a new one because the old life you already took to the cross. And all the laws of God that you broke, the, 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 one scripture says, this is a certificate of our debt nailed to the cross saying, paid, <laughs> cancelled. The list of all your wrongdoings marked cancelled at the cross. Do you need to make this a matter of personal faith? Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll help and strengthen anyone who right now is pouring out their heart to Jesus. Believing not just the facts of the cross, but the message of the cross. That God has come to offer us an exchange of death for life. Through his son who died and rose again for us. I pray that for all of us, Lord, we won't, we'll stop tinkering around with things that belong to our life outside and before faith. But the cross draws us again to, with such passion, with such love, to yield ourselves to you and say, we are. We want to be your dear, obedient children because you are our loving Father and Jesus, you're my loving Savior. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. We're going to break bread.